we literally have many winning lottery tickets, but it's not the kind you buy at the store and it's not going to give you millions of dollars, but it's that interaction. And now. I'm the captain now. Coming to you from the K2 studios in San Diego, California. This sounds great. You sound amazing. I always sound amazing. It's the world famous. Everybody sitting off like BFS. Chris and Christine Show. Hey, what's happening, everybody? How are you doing today? You know, thank you so much for listening. And I am Chris. And I'm Christine. And welcome to episode 106 of the Chris and Christine Show. Do, 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 do. Before you say it. <laughs> what? The 106th episode yeah? is your favorite favorite number. I was going to say that. I know you were because you say it every time and it's old. Ah, well. You need to get a new line. I know. Fantastic. No, I think it's, I mean, we're at episode 106. You've used fantastic like, well, 106 times 75. You know, I wonder, I wonder if there's a way I could go in and figure out how many times I've dropped a fantastic throughout the podcast history of the podcast. Well, you just need to ask all of our listeners because they'll probably cringe every time you say fantastic. And so you just ask them how many times a show do they cringe? I think it was 106 times, speaking of which, speaking of, speaking of that. 106 times 106. Yeah, there you go. a lot too much fantastic. Well, how are you doing today, baby? Mm, I'm a bit edgy. Uh, we all are a bit edgy because, well, first things first, how do you enjoy your new podcasting setup I got for you right now? Well, um, I appreciate the fact that you finally exercised equality in podcasting by giving the female podcaster... The equivalent uh, type of equipment to the male podcaster in the room, <laughs> what? who was always getting the preferential types of equipment, and I finally feel like maybe I have a little bit of a level playing field because now I'm not, you know, sitting on a rinky-dink TV tray. <laughs> And having to perch at the corner of a TV tray while you lounge with your boom arm and your ergonomic chair sitting at your fancy desk setup, I finally have a boom arm and I can finally sit comfortably. And you know what? Maybe, just maybe, it'll actually produce a better podcasting attitude you know, that, out of me. That was, that was the plan from the whole beginning. Oh, what? It, then why didn't you invest from the very beginning? Well, we didn't have a couch until just now. It doesn't matter. Well, you, just, I, you got a nice fancy couch you can sit on with a nice fancy boom arm and a wait, nice fancy microphone. A nice fancy couch that I bought. That's right. Mm-hmm. But I bought the microphone and the boom, boom arm. So right. we're oh, even. Thank you. Thank you, Big Spender. I really appreciate it. <laughs> it is nice to be. <laughs> it is kind of. I'm just trying to be snarky. I know. It is nice to actually like sit and feel like I'm comfortable where I'm not having to like worry about bumping the table and. You know, every time that I, oh, I would cringe behind, I literally, I'm, we're not joking, everybody. In our previous studio, and even when we started in this studio, I had to use a TV tray, a wooden TV tray and an office desk chair. And I would like perch up behind the wooden TV tray and I would have my mic stand. And, you know, we've evolved in terms of the types of microphones that we've used over time from like 
really inexpensive ones to like fancier ones to these, um, what are these ones called? The, the Rode microphone? They're pod mics. Pod mic. They're Wait, for podcasting. But I thought it was called Rode. Well, Rode's a company that makes it. It's Rode like, microphone. Think of it like mic. Ford and like Ford Mustang, Ford F-150. Okay. Ford you, you don't be need like to be Rode. condescending. I get it. Okay, okay. I get it, but it just says Rode on the box. And so I thought it was like a Rode. It is a Rode microphone. It actually says it, Rode microphone. And the model is PodMic. And it's designed for podcasting. So if you want a po- uh, microphone that's dedicated for podcasting, get the one that says for podcasting right on the box. Huh? There you go. Okay. I don't know who you're speaking to, <laughs> but what I was trying to say is it's really nice to actually be feeling like I can be sitting here comfortably and a little bit more relaxed and actually podcasting in the PJs right now because it is late on a Sunday night and we apologize for not being able to get this episode out earlier. But to say that today has been crazy and at times a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day would be a very accurate description in my book. I think it's like an understatement, really. Well, you know, I mean, I think I think well, you only had to participate in like 50 percent of the the difficult day. I well, had 175 percent. You, of the you difficulty. did. You did. It, you did. Thank and you. you were like, I, how can I help you? How can I help you? And I was like, you can start by not asking me, how can I help you? Because that just reminds me that you're not actually having to go through the terrible day and you're just sitting there on the sidelines as a spectator. It's well, like, no, it's like going to the Super Bowl and you see like there's like the really big team that's supposed to win and then they like go into the game and they get absolutely pummeled and the quarterback has been like knocked down and bloodied and it's like broken arm broken leg broken collarbone broken nose broken pinky toe tell me how you really feel broken broken tooth and it's like you're the cheerleader on the side that's like oh what is there anything that i could do to help and i'm like yeah, get in the freaking game. I'm like, oh, I'm not wearing the right outfit. It was like equivalent of today. It was like, Christine, I see that you're absolutely dying. And how can I help you today? And oh, by the way, I'm going to call you with more problems to deal with. That was my day, everybody. Oh, thank right, you. Right. Thank so, you very much. So, I rest my case. So everybody is clear in what you're talking about. As of right now, we are podcasting <sighs> almost close to midnight on Sunday night. We usually podcast. Saturday, Sunday night slash Monday morning on by the way, only like my second full day of vacation, which would be like this. Today was supposed to be my first full day of vacation because yesterday I was like doing all kinds of other stuff. Today was supposed to be my me day. Uh, yes, it was supposed to totally be your me day. So this morning started with Christine. It was, well, first off, backtrack a little bit. Ezekiel was staying here for the four days. He was here and, and uh, Ezekiel and Jacob and myself did a little quick uh, Gem Boys podcasting here in the room, which didn't go out very well because I, I didn't, I, my microphone wasn't turned on the entire time. So, so. he's going to, during Podtastic Audio's episode this week, he's going to talk about the what not to do when you're trying to have three people in the room <laughs> on microphones. It was actually, he set it up perfectly because he needed to have some really bad audio to be able to use as a sample in his podcast so congratulations on making the kids your guinea pig (laughs) well of course we rushed that episode out really quick i mean it's like a rush job on that episode so um the reason why was because ezekiel was supposed to leave this morning on an airplane back to fresno christine took him at what six in the morning over there five in the morning over there no i had to leave the house with him at um i think we left at 5 40 yeah, we left at 5.40 because I was up right before 5. 
had to shower and get ready and everything and um, got him to the airport. Oh, see, I'm yawning. I'm so tired. I'm so sorry. Long day. Long day. So um, had to get him there this morning. And um, his dad had texted me the night before and said, hey, just a heads up. It's the fog is rolling in really bad. Um, And I don't know how many people are familiar with the Central Valley, the San Joaquin Valley in California. But there is people refer to it as Thule fog. But it's this different kind of fog. It's not like what you get at the coast. It's like it socks it in. You can't see your nose in like the tip of your nose in the front of your face because it gets so dense and it's very dangerous to drive in. Uh, as a young woman, when I was commuting up from my hometown of Kingsburg up to Fresno State where I was attending college, um, we had a rule in my family that when you were going through the fog, you always have to keep your windows cracked open. And the reason for that is if the fog was too heavy and you weren't able to see the brake lights in front of you, you'd be able to hear screeching brakes Or if there was an accident, you'd be able to hear the crash of the metal so that you could at least avoid getting in the middle of a pileup because there's lots of pileups. And so his dad texted me last night and said, just a heads up, there may be a delay because the fog is coming in. And I was like, okay, I'll keep an eye on it. So, you know, checked the status when I got up in the morning. It was like everything's on time. Got Zeke to the airport and like just driving up to the airport on Harbor Boulevard, like that was the first sign that today was probably not going to go in my favor. Didn't you say that the actual airport here in San Diego was was so busy, the line to get through checking in through the TSA was like down the street? Okay, that's not even the first part of it. The line just to get into the area to drop people off in the terminal was, Terminal 2 is where we had to go for Alaska Airlines. And Terminal 2 is, of course, past Terminal 1. And there's a set of stoplights in between. Just to get to Terminal 2, the line was backed up all the way from the front of Terminal 2, down the curve, all the way through to the intersection and across the intersection, about another 30 cars backed up. Wow. So we're talking like a good 70, 75 cars just to drop people off. And I was like, oh, crud. Well, thank goodness we were actually parking and walking in. So we park and we park in the one hour spot because there's a one hour spot that I always love to park in. And then, you know, Zeke and I mask up. We walk across the little pathway, go up the escalator and we're met with like right when we come up the escalator, which is just below where everybody gets dropped off in Terminal 2. The line just to get in to the security line was all the way out to the curb. And I'm not even over-exaggerating that it was five people wide. There was wow. like five people wide all the way back, all the way in through like winding around the Terminal 2 and then zigzagging all the way through TSA. There were people everywhere. I mean, I they were just all waiting to get in the airport? They were all waiting to go through security. And so I was like, what in the world is going on? And it's, you know, I didn't even think about it because in in San Diego, flights don't take off around the clock. Like, I think like the first flights are at like 536 in the morning. Yeah, probably. Yeah. yeah. And so or maybe 637. And so, of course, it's like first flight of the day. It's like every airline's first flight of the day. And I didn't even think about that, that there's, you know, Terminal 2 is the biggest one. But Zeke has to go... um, 
they call it teen no assist. It's an unaccompanied minor service. You don't have to pay because for Because he is only 16 years old. Right. He's almost 17. But until he's 18, he has to fly this teen no assist. So I had to go up to the counter. But of course, I'm waiting to go up to the counter, as is everybody and their brother. And so. Oh, wow. Fortunately, they have like the bag drop off line and then they have like the actual assistance line. So we went up there, you know, they gave me the little tag and I always get priority verification, which means that I don't have to go through the big security line. So, of course, Zeke's like panicking, like, Mom, what are we going to do? I was like, I got this, buddy. And we just walked through. How the did side. you get that little security pass? It's just because I'm a parent assisting my child. It's like printed out on there because I'm not actually flying. It's just like but he gets to go through the cool line, too. Yeah, it's not like TSA pre-check. It's just like the first class and priority line. But and you so, still have to go through the standard like check you out, check your do the yeah, body of screen, course. the body screen, all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, of course. Okay. But we just didn't have to wait in the huge, huge line. Thank goodness. So we get to the we get through security, and then he decides he's hungry. Oh well, don't they have food inside the airport? Yes, they do. But what did I just say about how busy it was? Very busy. <laughs> yeah. And how many places do you think they have open to eat at now 610 in the morning? Uh, not all of them. Two. Two. Was Phil's one of them? Phil's. They have Phil's barbecue in the Oh, no. Uh, it was Pete's coffee and Jack in the Box. Well, Jack in the Box got food. Exactly. And coffee. Exactly. They do. Which means that how many people do you think were in the line for Jack in the Box? Well, probably the people that already got through. <laughs> yeah. So... Then, you know, Zeke and I are in line and he's like, mom, I'm really hungry for breakfast. I was like, okay, what do you want for breakfast? Chicken nuggets and french fries. <laughs> okay. And at this Staple point. Staple of every breakfast. And at this point in my life, I was like, I'm not going to fight it. Okay. We're ordering chicken nuggets and french fries for okay, breakfast. Okay. Well, there you go. There you go. So I get him over to his plane and uh, we're sitting there and then it's like, right about time to board and they say you know passengers to fresno on flight blah 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 uh just to note that the fog is coming in pretty thick and the captain is wanting to delay boarding for a few minutes while we check out the situation that was only for the flight to fresno or yeah, the, only other flights no only the flight to fresno okay so i was like oh, okay so i texted his dad and he's like oh, okay we'll just keep me updated well three minutes later literally three minutes later they're like okay we're gonna begin boarding for fresno and i was like Wait, you just, Hallelujah. Let's you just go. said, I was like, you just said the fog was rolling in, but now in three minutes, like it's magically changed. Okay. So they board the plane. Zeke takes off. You know, of course, I gave him a hug. I hop in my car. I went downtown, got some donuts from Donut Bar for us. Oh, it's fantastic. Thank you so yeah. much. And then I drive home and literally the minute that I walk in the door, I get a phone call from his dad saying, from Zeke's dad saying, Zeke texted me because of the fog or the plane is over Fresno right now because they were supposed to land right then. It's only a 45 minute flight. So the plane is over Fresno, but it's the fog is too thick for them to land. He thinks or the pilot say, is saying they're going to divert the plane to LAX. Now, dun, 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 my 16 year old, my 16 year old solo in LAX without parents able to get to him for three, four hours. I don't think that would go well. What do you think, Chris? It reminds me of that movie Home Alone, but he's a little older than the, than the kid in Home Alone. But it's a whole, whole Home Alone situation, But right? in an, like one of the world's largest airports, unaccompanied. I'm sure he could figure out his way around. Exactly. That's the problem. He could figure out his way around. You know what it reminded me? It'd be like the movie The Terminal. 
He'd be yeah. like Tom Hanks sitting there. He'd be He'd like, be like Tom Hanks Hawaii, character. I'll go. Yeah, it just sounds like a good place to go. I don't know. He's a great kid. I just worried. And I was like starting to hyperventilate. And I was asking his dad, well, what's the plan going to be? And he's like, well, you're just going to have to drive up to LAX and get him and then bring him up to meet me halfway. And I was like, what in the world? Like, I have a work meeting. I have a bride I have to meet with today. We're going to do a venue walkthrough. And we have podcasting due today, too. Well, priorities exactly. are paid work, Good. you know? You know. Uh-huh. Hey, don't talk to our sponsors that way. <laughs> So um, then, you know, I get a call back five minutes later. Oh, I, I said to his dad, you need to go tell them that there's an unaccompanied minor on that plane and he cannot be diverted to LAX. So his dad calls me back like five minutes later and he says, um, so the captain of the, um, the, not plane. the ship, yeah, the captain of the plane uh, said that they are returning to San Diego. And I was like, what? And he said, yeah, they're already on their way. I'm like, oh, crud. Because it's like a 35, 40 minute drive from here to the airport. So by the time that I was just about to get from the 163 freeway to the five, Zeke was texting me to ask if I was there to get him already. His plane had already landed. And then I had to go into the airport and wait for him while I was at the counter and as I was walking up to the counter to try and figure out how to get him home, I get a text notification from Alaska Airlines that says, we're so sorry that there was a challenge with your flight. We've uh, done a courtesy rebooking for you for your flight on Tuesday at 7.30 a.m. Well, that's not going to do you no good because Ezekiel's got school Monday morning. And you in, and I. Fresno. And you and I. Are leaving town tomorrow for our little anniversary getaway slash wedding coordination in Lake Arrowhead. Right. So we're not going to be here either. So how is he going to get home? <laughs> so as you might know, it is very late on this Sunday night as we record this, which only can be one thing. What is that, Chris? We got in the car and took an all-day road trip up north to bring Ezekiel back home. Well, we didn't go all the way. We met his dad halfway, but it felt like all the way because we kept getting into – we're in – a four-day holiday weekend. We kept encountering traffic everywhere. It took us over four hours to get just to the halfway point. And then we just got back home about an hour ago or so, got the littles showered and into bed. And we are, I think, capital E exhausted. <laughs> yes, we are. We are totally phoning this episode in, like literally. <laughs> <laughs> phoning it in. <laughs> No, but we have definitely had quite the day, quite the adventure. But, you know, as irritated as I was at the beginning when you were like, how can I help? How can I help? And I was just like, I can't even talk right now. I will say that the moment that you found out that I needed to drive up halfway, you said, I'm driving us and we're all going. And I was like, OK, thank you. And we did. You know, I drove for the first hour or so and then you took took it on the rest of the way. And I really didn't need that because I'd been up, like I said, since just before 5 a.m. And I think we clocked it out because I, I got gas in my car after I'd taken Zeke to the airport and was on my way back with the donuts. So I'd already been on the road for like an hour. By the time we got home, I had 10 hours clocked on my car. So I think a total of 11 hours in the driving, in the vehicle, today. driving and in the vehicle today. And that was supposed to be my me day. So happy me day. I know. We're now behind schedule by one day because of the stupid fog. Yeah. But thankfully, Ezekiel was able to get to his dad. 
and get home on time and be able to sleep in his other bed at his other house and be on time for school. And on top of that, we did have a fantastic weekend. And I will say the one thing that I loved about Ezekiel, you know, normally he'd be real bent out of shape and everything with everything, but he knew that we were going to get him home somehow. And as I was driving him back over here, he said, well, I mean, it would have been nice to be home with my dad already. But the good thing about being delayed a little bit is I have a little bit more time to hang out with the boys. Oh, that was very. They I were know. like, they were like peas and carrots all weekend long. All right, Forrest Gump. They I just know. like peas and carrots. They were. <laughs> but those t- three kids were just glued to each other the entire time. They're so wild and so hyper because the hyperness was because they were so excited to be around each other and they were, they were right. loving each other. And even though they had their moments where they're fighting and arguing and, and pushing and shoving at, at points in the uh, whole you know weekend, they were very happy to be together. They were. And it had been a while because of Ezekiel's water polo schedule that he had been down here. He hadn't even been to the new house yet. And so he got to be down here and get comfortable in his new bedroom and um, I took the boys shopping um, on Thursday on the holiday because I had all of the kids. I brought them all here for the weekend. I took them two days early, the littles two days early, and then took the boys all shopping to get decorations for their room. And then it was so cute, Chris, when we came home from all of this shopping spree that we went on. Um, they went from room to room. They strategized how they were going to do it. They're like, OK, so we're going to start off in Jacob's room. And Wait, all three of them were going to decorate each room together. Yeah. Well, Mason was working on his and Jacob got started on his. So Zeke went to help him because I was down here installing Zeke's um, his mount for his TV on the wall. So he couldn't be in here right then. So then he's like, well, I'll go help Jacob. And then when Jacob and I are done, we'll go help Mason. And then everybody can come down and help me set up my room. And so they like went from room to room helping each How other. How sweet is that? I know. Adorable. They even, they even got the hammer and the nails. No way. And yeah, they nailed everything up. I helped them with like two things. But I felt like for as a young man, that's like a really important thing is to like learn how to start using tools. Stop looking around the room at them being crooked, you goofball. <laughs> well, why is that thing crooked? No, okay. but you know what? They're happy with it. And it's like... And you know what makes me happy though is Ezekiel's taking on San Diego as part of his personal... <laughs> the Padres, like, yeah. He's got Padres logo everywhere, which is kind of weird because Ezekiel's very much like stuck in his way when it comes to like, oh, it's got to be the Steelers or it's got to be the Giants or it's got to be the... Uh, Not stuck in his way. We just like certain teams. Well, I understand that. Just but- like you are stuck in your way about liking the Padres. I, well, whatever. And I, the Chargers. Well, what is that? Well, okay. Anyways, <laughs> no, it, it, no, no, never mind. But um, <laughs> but I do appreciate that Ezekiel is taking on some pottery stuff because you see pottery decorations around. Oh, yeah. Here. But it was so cute when the boys were all decorating and then when they were picking stuff out, they wanted to get some of the same stuff in all of their rooms and it was like, well, I want that Padres flag. Oh, I want that Padres flag. And what about this picture? And, you know, they just had fun with it and it feels... Now it feels even more like home because our boys have their rooms decorated in a way that represents their own unique personalities. And they each have kind of carved out their own little place in this little this little new world that we're building. And it just makes it so fun. Oh, how sweet. Yes. So uh, what's what's been up with you, Chris? Well, thank you for asking me, baby. It just so happens that this week is 
Vacation Chris is in the house. Wait, you were just Vacation Chris two weeks ago. That is a very good point and very valid. Yes, I was. But why'd you take this week off? I took this week off because it happens to be more important than birthday week. And more important than vacation week, it's it's uh, vacation week plus the bonus of anniversary week. It is. Can you believe that we actually got married a full year ago? Well, not quite, dude. You still got a couple of days to be able to claim that you made it a whole year with me. <laughs> okay, what's that mean? <laughs> well, you've been walking on thin ice lately, buddy. <laughs> well, I'm trying ice skating, you know, you know. <laughs> Maybe I'll go to Canada one day. No. I don't know. <laughs> no. Can you believe it? Like at this time last year, we were like in the final preparations for the wedding. I know. And I was stressed out then. I'm, I'm always stressed out. But You're I think, always stressed out. Well, I think I'm stressed out so much because I always see things very linear and I'm trying to make sure that things don't wobble off the straight and narrow path that I live my life. And, and by the nature of trying to keep them from wobbling, they crash to the ground. <laughs> they do. I'm like a train track. I'm like a train on a train track and you're like throwing sand and like rocks on the tracks. And, what? I'm not throwing anything. You're and, more like a bulldozer. And then it's like when you try to bulldoze everything, like you think you can handle the big rocks, but then you like try to lift a pebble and it like breaks off the front of your little like my little tractor, tractor. <laughs> my little tractor arm. <laughs> well, thank you for that analogy. Well, babe. anyways, it's, it's so it's vacation week. Yeah, it was, and anniversary you know, week. It so. is great, and we are leaving out of town tomorrow, or I probably today. If you look at the clock, I haven't looked at the clock yet, and we're going to leave up to Lake Arrowhead. I'm so excited for that. We're going to stay up there. For, how many nights? Two nights, three nights? Two nights because I have my first destination wedding that I was hired to coordinate for. And wait, this is your first? I thought didn't you didn't you already do it one that was a little further away of San Diego? Before no, I thought you not did one further than this. This is no, like, not no further than this. But I thought you did one already outside the county. Well, but this is like uh, far enough away that we have to stay over. And so right. I remember when you told me you're going to book the, this wedding um, out of town. And I was like, you probably should get a room because it's going to be a little further than a day. And trip. I said to you, I already know my business strategy and it's taking place at a resort and it's already factored in. You try to take credit for things that I actually did. I didn't take credit. Irritating. But what? back to the happy stuff. So yeah. because this is happening in our anniversary week and we had already been planning to go to Mexico, but because of COVID stuff, we just decided to like not do it. This wedding came up like a week or two after we made that decision to not do Mexico. And it was really it's a blessing in disguise because it's like this really cute resort area. It's a really sweet couple. It's a smaller wedding, but um I'm really grateful to be able to go and support them and to have you there and to get well, some of course. and yeah. to get some time away from everything just to like decompress because we've, you know, had a really crazy first year of marriage if you think about it. Uh, yeah. Yeah, we sure did. I mean, I know I know a lot of people go through a lot of problems, you know, when they're married and and a lot of stresses and and a lot of a lot of things seem to happen. And it seems like when you're married the problems seem to amplify bigger for some reason. I think so, yeah. I, yeah, I don't I don't know if it's just if it's just the fact that two people are stressed out and they like bubble together, they're two stress bubbles. But then you add in a couple of house floods and blending families and selling a house and, and buying kids. a new house and COVID, not just the lockdown, but actually getting COVID and going through really serious battles with that and navigating, you know, shared custody of kids with other parents and, you know, trying and to figure work. out how to be married and how to communicate and coming over our own little, you know, past, I don't want to call them demons, but like the, 
our own hurts and hangups and it's it's been a lot. It has been a lot. I mean Is, I, is first year of marriage always this hard? Um you know I, I don't I don't think so. I don't know. You know? I mean I mean Like are we doing it wrong? I don't know. I, I mean you tell me baby. What do you think? I don't know. I just know that this first year has been well, maybe maybe it feels hard. I'm thinking about this out loud. Maybe it feels hard because we're committing ourselves to do the hard work of figuring out how to communicate effectively and not going to bed angry as often as possible and trying to like not sit on an argument and actually like hashing things out. I think that's the difference with us is when something comes up, it comes up and we deal with it. Even if it gets a bit messy in the middle of it, we figure out how eventually how to make our way through, even if it takes a couple of hours of sitting to figure it out. Maybe that's why it feels hard is because I think so many people when they deal with like confrontation or disagreement, it's easier to like skirt around it and ignore it and like avoid it versus like addressing it. Right. Right. I think it is because people do is they will also bury their head in the sand. You know, mm-hmm. I've I'm personally I've done that for many, many years of my life and kind of still do, I think, a little bit. <laughs> is that when there's an argument, it's like you kind of go away, you close up shop and you just kind of like go away and, and, and you put yourself in another side of the house, another room or a vehicle, for example, and you go out for a drive. I used to do that a lot. I used to get my truck and I would just take off. And just, just that's not, not good. I'm just leaving and I'm not I'm not telling anybody where I'm going. I'm just going to like go and cool off. I, I would freak out if you did that, by the way. Well, I don't think I've ever done that in our first year of marriage. Have I ever done that? No, you haven't. OK, well, because I probably have learned my lesson to not do that anymore. I used to do that a lot and uh, not so much with like relationships, but I've done that with like family members, you know, like, you mm-hmm. know, parents used to piss me off and I would take off <laughs> and leave and things like that. It happened when I was younger, too. I used to go like, I'm running away. So I would go like take off and like just disappear like down the street or wherever. And so yeah. my parents would probably like, I don't think they would care. Like, oh, where's Chris at? Oh, well, he'll be back in a minute. No, of course he ca- they cared. But I think like going back to relationships and life lessons, it's really important to like help ourselves figure out what those life lessons are so that we don't continue to repeat those challenges. Wouldn't you agree? I would agree 100%. Absolutely. And on this week's episode, we have a fantastic coach and mentor who's going to be talking to us about some of his own life lessons that he's learned. So stay tuned for that right after this. Hey, thank you so much for being a loyal listener of The Chris and Christine Show. And as that you are a loyal listener, we have a very fun opportunity for you to get involved with the show. Ooh, tell me more. If you like to get exclusive content you can't get anywhere else, and to receive free merchandise shipped to you every single month. Ooh, I want that. Then head over to patreon.com slash the Chris and Christine show. That is patreon.com slash the Chris and Christine show. And welcome back, everyone. Today we have another special VIP guest. He is an author, a writer, a speaker a coach, and a mentor. Welcome to the show, Sam Thiara. It's a pleasure to be here today, and uh, I hope that I'm able to provide some insights for your audience today. Oh, hey, Sam. Thanks for showing up today. We appreciate this, buddy. Now, what area of the world are you joining us from, Sam? I'm all the way up in uh, Vancouver, Canada, and it's a beautiful part of the world. Oh, Vancouver's wonderful. I've never been to Vancouver. What is it like up there? Is it pretty wildernessy or metropolitan? 
It's actually the best of everything. You can ski in the morning and golf in the afternoon. I'm three blocks from the wilderness, seven minutes to the waterfront, and a 12-minute passenger ride to the heart of downtown Vancouver. You get everything here, as well as uh, sort of that tropical feel of Canada, because we don't get a lot of snow, but for the rest of the world, I think uh, you would never call us tropical. <laughs> you know, uh, Christine over here, she's a big fan of those Hallmark movies. Now, are they filmed up there in Vancouver? I think they are, aren't they? They are. So you what? a lot of those... They are. They are filmed here. And it's interesting because I don't watch them, but on time, you know, you see the channel surfing and you're like, wait, that's uh, this place over here. So, yeah, no they are way. done here, too. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I might be having to come and visit up in Vancouver. <laughs> well, Christina's addicted to those uh, okay. uh, Hallmark movies. She's, she's been watching them since like last month, those Christmas hey, movies. Hey, don't judge me. If Hallmark puts them on, they're positive and they keep me in the right mindset. So why not? I am a hopeless yeah. romantic. <laughs> well, and that's why Vancouver is called Hollywood North. Oh, I did not know that. It is. It is. So yeah. do you guys have like your own production studio up there, like a big warehouses or anything? Where's this stuff located? Oh, oh, totally. We have a number of different studios and it's all too often you'll see the trucks and uh, everything all parked. And then, you know, it, there's so many different sites where they're shooting different things happening um, in Vancouver itself, but then also in the outskirts. If you want more wilderness, you'll see trucks venturing out to the more wilderness parts of uh, the lower mainland, which is around Vancouver. Well, that is amazing. Now, are you originally from Canada, Sam? So I was born in England, but uh, moved to Vancouver when I was a wee lad, uh, maybe four years. I always say I I came here on lies and deceit because my parents told me that once we get to Vancouver, your tricycle will be there. And <laughs> it wasn't It wasn't here. But years oh, no. later, I saw my cousins tearing around the streets of Southampton on my tricycle. And uh, I'm still devastated to this day. <laughs> so you're born in England, relocated to Canada. What part of England? I was born in Southampton. Southampton. Okay. Is that closer to, I mean, I'm not from England. Is that closer to London? I mean, it's about an hour and 10 minute train ride. It's uh, pretty much right on the, the bottom part of England. When you uh, see a little island on the bottom, it's just uh, located in that vicinity. And uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, like another home to me whenever I go back. Oh, that's amazing. So now you were born in England and you moved to Canada. And then um, did you stay in Canada for the rest of your adult life? Yes. Uh, Vancouver has been home for my family. But incidentally, my parents are actually from Fiji Islands, which is near Australia. And my grandfathers and my ancestors are from India. So we're quite a global family here. Wow, look at that. All, all over the world. Literally. Mm -hmm. Well, I will tell you, I did visit Fiji for one night. Oh. It was a layover on my way to Australia, and right. it was gorgeous. I was able to stay in a hotel overnight for my layover, and yeah. oh gosh, that's a place that I would love to travel back to. Well, I got a question about Fiji. Is the Fiji yeah. water truly from Fiji? Good question. I mean, <laughs> I, I would, I would, I would hope so. But equally at the same time, oftentimes you'll see the label Fiji on something and you're like, wait, is it really from there? I, I've never really explored it. I mean, I'm assuming it is to call it Fiji water. Right, right. Yeah. But yeah. that would seem like it would be expensive, Chris. Well, to... it is expensive. You bought Fiji water? It's not cheap. <laughs> I do. I love it. <laughs> well, well, and to be fair, I mean, again, living in uh, the lower mainland in Vancouver, 
I think the reports have said we have actually some of the purest water in the world. Really? Why would they say that? Well, we have uh, all of these areas. Well, the the glacial flow comes in, but equally at the same time, uh, oftentimes what happens is it filtered through the ground and the sand and everything, but what emerges is probably some of the purest waters you can drink. Oh, wow. Well, now you know, Chris, you got to go to Canada for the best water. Just the water. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we've got the great sunshine here in San Diego, but the water, not so much. (laughs) Tijuana next door, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) I mean, hey, over here, we just drink it straight out of the tap and uh, we don't need to get bottled water or anything else. It just comes beautifully out of the tap. And it tastes good out of the tap? Oh, man, it's beautiful. Really? What's that like? My goodness, good life. (laughs) Whole new world. Well, Sam, we're really excited to have you on the show today, and we would love to learn a bit more about your background. And so we have been definitely checking out your website, and it looks like you have some amazing accomplishments in you know, writing and speaking, coaching and mentoring. But um, why don't you take us back to maybe young adulthood and talk about any of the challenges that you had to overcome as a young adult? Yeah, no, definitely. And those challenges actually have carried me to who I am today. And oftentimes I share the, the this quote that I live by, obstacles are the necessary bricks on a road to success. And it reminded me that I I should never fear the obstacles. I need to embrace them because they become part of who I am. And that mentality when I graduated from university, what was interesting is, you know, you sit at graduation and I graduated with a degree in business and political science and this whole concept and an idea of, okay, who's lucky to get me? Because that's that's a killer combination, business and poli-sci. And I remember sitting at graduation thinking, okay, I guess now I have to do what the next step is and that's apply for jobs. So, Back then, it was interesting because there was no internet and you had to, you know, either handwrite or type the letters, but that's what I wound up doing. Yeah. So here I am sending about 12 letters to companies and I sat and I waited and a letter arrived two weeks later, opened it up and it said, thank you for applying. We don't have a job for you, but uh, good luck in your search. And I thought, Hmm. okay, you're not lucky. (laughs) Right. I I still have 11 letters out there, but you know what? I am going to send three more out today. And I sent them out and you know what? It started to feel like the tide. The more letters I sent out, the more letters came back. And it suddenly the narrative shifted from, you know, who's lucky to get me to, am I lucky to get a job? Oh, no. Oh, and, and the worst part is, I still have my 86 rejection letters from the companies. It literally is the size of a brick and weighs about the size of a brick. Now, what was and, the tone of those letters? Like, what did they say? Were they, were they all very similar? Like, thanks, but no thanks? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was pretty much the similar. And I always love that concept of, but we will keep your resume on file for of six course. months should a suitable opportunity come up. And I'm <laughs> going, that just means you filed me in the rubbish bin. Right. Um, you know, and... It was interesting because, like I said, every single letter became a nail in my coffin of self-confidence. But also, I don't know why I kept the letters like they arrived, and I'm not sure why I kept them. But I did get my first job. I mean, oh my gosh, somebody finally gambled on me. And the degree was in business and poli-sci, so 
obviously, you know, it's an entry-level government job that I had. And that job was being a janitor in a hospital, mopping floors and emptying rubbish bins because that's government work. It's a union. Oh, wow. Mm, interesting. But here's the thing. When I went into that job, I never looked at it as, okay, you know, what a terrible start to my life this is. Instead, I said, okay, I'm going to go into this job and look at the opportunities and possibilities, not the challenges. And when I did that, three valuable life lessons emerged that still carries me to who I am today. The first lesson, my father said, I don't care what you do for a living, you do the best job possible. And you know what? It meant that every, every day that I was at work, there was no floor cleaner than at the end of my shift and no yep. rubbish been left full. Yep, absolutely. And I, am, and I embrace that today in any quality work that I do is it has to be the best. Now, the second, you, uh, it, sorry, go it, ahead. Yeah, in, in talking about that, you know, that goes back to work ethic. And that's one of the things that Chris and I have a conversation with our boys mm -hmm. about because we're raising our three sons right. is that no matter what, your work ethic is going to speak volumes about who you are as an individual. And I, I don't know if I've figured out a way to teach work mm -hmm. ethic. And, you know, we can talk with our kids all the time. But what was it, in your father's words, that made an impact on you? I think it was just the fact that the respect I had for him and his insight that said, okay, I'm going to go in and do the best job because of, of that. And I guess throughout my life, and part of what I do share is that when I was nine years old, uh, he had an industrial accident and became a paraplegic and oh, never no. walked again. Yeah, yeah. But again, in that situation, we never dwelled on the, you know, thousand things that he couldn't do. We, instead, we focused on the 5,000 things that he could do. And, you know, we just basically, I guess, as normal as our life could be, but he was confined to a wheelchair from that moment on in, uh, uh, when I was nine and a half years old. And I think that those groundings are what sort of supported me with regards to building that uh, work ethic that he had always indicated to me is you put the best quality work in anything that you do. And uh, right. that's what yeah. emerged. Yeah. Absolutely. And the second life lesson that I pulled, there were times that I would get on an elevator with a janitor's uniform on, and I would be in the presence of doctors, nurses, administrators, the professionals, and it's not every time, but there were many times I just was ignored because, you know, we are this and you are this. And it told me that, you know, I know what it feels like to be ignored. I will never treat anybody like this. And this is why it's now been about 5,000 conversations because I make sure that I am present for anybody who needs a conversation. That emerged, and that carries me to who I am today. You right, know, that's, yeah. that is a really good point, Sam. So in growing up, my parents always taught me that when you are interacting with people, you treat the mm -hmm. individuals working in service professions with the same or higher level of respect as you would like the president of the United States. And that's because mm -hmm. it's about human dignity, and it's about supporting one another, and everybody is doing the best that they can. And so- right. As you went through that experience of sometimes feeling invisible or feeling less than because of your occupation, 
How has that impacted you throughout your career now? Well, as a result of that, it, it, that's where the mentorship and coaching comes in because people have felt lost, but you know, where do I go? Who do I talk to? And it becomes this piece that there's a lot of noise and it's about how do I activate their voices to be louder than the noise around? So we go into these conversations, but the idea is you, by doing that, uh, by making yourself open to this, people feel more comfortable approaching you to talk about it. And oftentimes, because I teach at university now, that students will come to my office hours and they just sit down and they say, I don't need to talk to you about the class. I just wanted to come and see you or talk to you. And they start telling me about life and career, uh, any number of topics. It does. It, they might talk about the academic side, but oftentimes it's more of, I just wanted to come and hang out in your office if that's okay. And I'm Are like, you like the Absolutely. super cool teacher everyone wants to hang out at? I want to hang out and uh, chit chat with and uh, maybe go to the pub after- <laughs> afterwards. <laughs> See, I don't think it's in my position to say I'm that super cool teacher. I think I'd have to, <laughs> I'd have to revert that to my students. And it's always funny because we have that uh, system in place or a platform called Rate My Professor. Oh, yeah. And do you know what? I never even go on it because I'm sure that there are a couple of comments that – you know, uh, students who got a bad mark in my class, they put the blame on me, not on themselves. Mm-hmm. And it's always funny because I always tell my students, you know, I don't go and rate my prof. And then here in class, you'll see students going, they say, give me a thumbs up. And they say, nope, you got a good rating. I'm like, okay, it's good <laughs> to know. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Now, was there more than just those two lessons that your father yes. taught you? Was there a third one? Yeah, the third lesson about being a janitor, mopping floors and emptying rubbish bins is I have a degree on my wall. And here I am doing this service-related job. And I wound up thinking to myself, okay, if I'm here, I'm going to look beyond the obvious of my role and what I'm doing. And I started thinking to myself, okay, what can I learn as a result of being a janitor? And it's interesting because it's about the relationships. It's about the processes of how this area works. And it, what it taught me was in anything that I do, there are always lessons to be learned, experiences to be had. And I still carry that with me today in any of the things that I do. I never look at it from an obvious, well, I'm an, I'm a lecturer at university or I'm mentoring and coaching. I'm an entrepreneur. What I look at is what can I learn as a result of this that's going to help me become a richer individual, not from a standpoint of financial wealth, but from an intrinsic piece of making me a, a much more richer individual of richer experiences? Well, that's a really valid point. And it makes me wonder, Sam, as you mentioned that you're working at universities now and you're instructing students, mm-hmm. one of the conversations that Chris and I have frequently is about what we see happening um, with young people, which is this kind of sense of, and I, I don't want to lump everyone into st- yep. the stereotype, but this sense of entitlement mm-hmm. of wanting to get out into the job market and you know wanting to make you know eighty thousand, one hundred thousand dollars straight out of right. college, and knowing the journey that you went on with their degree in basket weaving, right? <laughs> yeah. But with the journey that you went on. And having to face all of that rejection, 
How does that impact the way that you're educating future generations at the university right now? Yeah. I mean, I think what I do with my class, I teach organizational behavior, which is like a business psychology course. But I often, what I institute on in there are stories and my own experiences. And I talk about a concept that I say, we have myth, theory, and practice. Myth is what we believe the world to be based on the stories of you know, what happens out there. It, 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 it doesn't mean it's true or not, but it's just what the stories are. Where do you get those stories from, though, the myths? Well, I think the stories are ingrained in our society. Uh, the example I can share with you is, you know, if you were to go to the top of the Empire State Building and, you know, suddenly hurl pennies at the people below, what's going to happen? And the myth is, well, people have died or people are going to get seriously hurt. It's going to go through the roof of the car or it's going to embed in the ground. Does that happen for and, real? Well, that's, a, that's the myth. Well, the theory part says, well, let's look at it from a logical standpoint. Well, a penny weighs a gram. Even if you threw it from the top of the Empire State Building, eventually wind resistance is going to catch it and it's going to start fluttering. And by the time it hits a person, it literally is going to feel like a tap on their cheek or on their shoulder and nothing will happen. Hmm, interesting. But the th- but here's the thing. That's the theory, but nothing has been proven yet. And I mean, does it work or doesn't it work? So this one professor, for example, it wasn't me, but a professor decided to try this. And he went to the people that run the Empire State Building to say, we'll cordon off an area. My assistant will throw pennies from the top and I'll be down below to get hit by them. And, you know, we want to prove this theory that nothing will happen. Well, it was rejected. They said, nope, it's a liability issue. People have died and people have died and uh, gotten hurt. And the person said, okay, but who died? And they were like, well, we don't know who died, but people have died. And that's why we don't do this. You're not allowed to throw pennies and things from up on top. But he said, but wait, the theory says this. They're like, nope, can't do it. So here's the thing. We've got the myth. We got the theory. But I live in the world of practicality. So this professor, and the story goes that he went out into a field with a balloon and raised it to the height of the Empire State Building with a contraption, released the contraption, and all these pennies dropped. And you know what? It was just like a light tap. I live in the world of the practical side. So let's take the myth, the stories that are embedded in society. Let's look at the theories and see if they work or not. But you have to go into the world of practicality. So going back to what you were asking, I really want to focus on the practical side of career, the practical side of the journey with these individuals. And I try to break these myths because even, for example, this morning, I had a conversation with a student who really was trying to not argue or debate it, but uh, on the midterm, you know, he felt he should have got three more marks on it. And I basically told him, you're playing soccer with a hockey stick. Because Can you do that? I don't know. (laughs) I guess you could. Well, in Canada, we can. You can't, but we can. Right. Uh, But the idea behind it is, you know, you're so focused on the marks. Do you know that most of the employers are not asking about GPAs, transcripts, seeing a copy or degree or any of that stuff? They want to know what can you do. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And But that's where I think there's this disconnect because people are so focused on the marks. And I can understand and I can appreciate that it's an accomplishment and achievement. But 
if it's because you want to get that job, the employer's not looking at that. So that's why I said it's like playing soccer with a hockey stick and you're not even in the right game. What do you think employers are looking for then, if that's what they're looking for? Oh, man, they're looking for practical experiences. They're looking at can you have a conversation with somebody uh, you know, in the environment and, uh, you know, they're looking at practical skills. And that's what I try to give my students are practical skills to, you know, give them a case to say, you're going to solve this case as part of your final project, but it's going to demonstrate teamwork, uh, analytical skills, strategy, those things emerge. Nice. But also going back to what you asked about the entitlement piece, one of the things I do in my class, and again, I have a lot of fun when I teach my class, but I often ask them, I said, what are you motivated by? Because we talk about motivation. I said, what are you motivated by? Like, you're going to be gearing up and going towards a career once you graduate. And obviously, the first thing everybody sort of brings up is money. Money. Yep. Salary. <laughs> Oh, and I say, okay, so let's, and then we start making a list of things and eventually there's other things, but let's go back to that money piece. And so, and I turn to the audience and I say, so you're motivated by money. Am I correct? And they're like, oh yeah, money. It's, we're motivated by this. That's why we're here. I said, okay, if I was to take you and move you into, let's say a labor job, let's say we put you into a ditch and, you know, I'm going to pay you really great wages and you're going to be shoveling and making ditches for the rest of your life. Would you do it? And they're like, well, okay, how much? And I said, okay, let's say $100,000 starting salary, and you're going to be uh, in the trenches. And they're like, no, that's not realistic. I said, okay, what is realistic? And they say, a billion dollars. I said, come on. Whoa. Oh. A billion dollars? <laughs> oh, no, that's where that's what they will say. Some of them will say. And I said, okay, but do you realize by graduating university, your starting salary might be on average anywhere from thirty-five to forty-five thousand dollars starting salary, maybe even thirty. So if I pay you a hundred thousand, I mean you're getting like literally Double. it could be even triple even the amount right. that you might get in your first job. But would you do it? And they say, Well, you know, maybe I'll do it for the first year or couple until I find something better. I said, No, no, you don't understand. You're motivated by money. So if I pay you in increments for the rest of your life, for 35 years, you're going to be doing this Monday to Friday, 9 to 5. Would you do it? And they say, well, of course not. And I said, so let's put this aside. Money is not a motivator. Money is a result of your motivation. Because when you pursue what is authentic to you, that just engages you and ignites you, the money's going to come because people want to hire you because it's authentic and natural to you. So that's what I try to get them to really focus on in my class as part of some of the lessons. Do you think that a lot of these students are kind of oblivious to the grasp of, like you said, they're, you come out of college, you're only going to make like, you know, averaging, say, 50 grand, yep. 40 grand a year plus mm -hmm. student loan debt and things like right. that that are going to be hanging over their head when they graduate. Mm -hmm. do, do students like, grasp a concept of all that when they do get out into the real world? I think what happens is, I mean, they're really sort of focused on the task of being a student and going through their academics. And not all of them, as much like uh, was said earlier, we don't want to clump them all. But I think a lot of them are just going along on this journey. And then as they get closer to graduation, the head pops up going like, oh, I guess I better start looking for work now. And it's almost like you're you're just looking at that destination of I'm going to get the degree and then I'm going to go for that job. 
the the journey is the most important part, but they're not focused on the journey. They're focused on the destination. And that's where I try to capture them to say, okay, but what's the journey? And oftentimes in my, well, what I do in every class or every semester is I get them to write a personal statement. Tell me who you are, not what you do. And they struggle with this. And then we revisit it at the end of the semester where I get them to rewrite their personal statement. You know, I am an individual who, and all of a sudden now, you know, they're starting to focus on the who, not the what. Mm -hmm. And some clarity starts to emerge. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, it makes me wonder, Sam, about your own personal journey from janitor to professor. So Mm -hmm. as you've had to wrestle yourself with not what you do, but who you are, um, what's a little bit more of that self-discovery story? Like where, what types of activities did you go through to be able to figure out your own identity? Well, and it's a great thing that you just brought up there, Christine, because the thing was that as I was focused on what, so the janitorial job led to a retail job, I could do it, it just didn't fit me. Then I got into a crown corporation, which is a a government-run corporation, but they run it as a company. And over there, I was a, a claims adjuster, and I could do the job, but it just never fit. It really felt like I was... You know, for example, and I use analogies is, you know, it's like I'm wearing a 52 short suit, but I'm a 42 regular. And I looked around at the people and they're, everybody's wearing the same suit, a 52 short. So now a few people, it fits really well and they're, they're in the job and they should be doing that job. But majority of us are wearing 52 shorts. And, you know, think of it from a career standpoint, you can wear a 52 short suit, but it doesn't fit. I could be in this job, but it doesn't fit. So I was focused on the what. Right. But the moment I shifted the narrative to who I am, I started fashioning a tailored suit because I realized this job wasn't right for me. And the way I did this is I started looking at, okay, what are the things that make up my foundation? So what is it that's important to me that I'm not willing to compromise? And I came up with five things and it, those five things are so important to me. And when I compared it to the job I was in, I was like, this doesn't even hit one out of five, really. Well, then I started putting my attention to the direction to say, okay, but if these things are really important to me, what does this mean? And all of a sudden, I, I grasped at this idea of community relations and road safety, And all of a sudden, so I started from scratch where I had no experience in this. And then 14 months later, I got the job. But what I found is through the journey of getting that job, I was having a lot of fun doing this, even though I had my regular 52 short uh, suit job. Mm -hmm. But that tailored suit started to, to, to form and fit. And I was really enjoying myself. And all of a sudden, because it was authentic to me, 14 months later from having no experience, I got that job in road safety. Now, those five things, for example, have changed over time because we, anytime I work with anybody, they're fearful that you're making me pick five things that are so important to me. What if they're not the right words? Right. And I always tell them, I said, but you start from somewhere, but as you get those five things, 
And as you go through life, you can change them anytime. So right now, I've changed my five. So my five words right now that guide and direct me in life and career, not career, but life and career, servant leadership, story sharing, activator igniter, champion enabler, and community do-gooder. There you go. See, I've got 12 projects that I'm working on simultaneously. Now, they're not totally independent of each other, but they are distinct. But all 12 hit five out of five. So my storytelling integrates into my teaching, which also integrates into my speaking, into the mentorship and coaching. So you can see where there's these alignments. Now, to help your audience as well, you know, that voice within has to be louder than the noise around because if you don't activate your voice, people around you are going to do that for you. Right. Here's how you come up with it. Look at any jobs that you've had. What did you like about them? What did you not like about your job? But the critical question to ask is why? What about courses? Courses that you've done. What did you like about any of the courses? What did you not like about the courses? But the critical part is why? And what do you like to do in your spare time, your social life? Why? And by looking at it from a very reflective lens, introspection, you can start to pull words. So for example, I get people oftentimes saying, one thing that is so important to me that I'm not willing to compromise is family. Right. I said, okay, why is family so important to you? And then they say, well, it's about the relationships I have with my family, my extended family, my connectedness. And I said, okay. And we go through. Then I say, okay, you use the words relationships and connectedness. Does that also apply to your work environment? And they're like, oh, absolutely. Does it also apply to the courses you were doing? And they're like, oh, for sure. What about your social life? Does relationships and connectedness matter there? And they're like, Oh, actually, it does. Right. (laughs) So I said, can we replace family with relationships and connectedness as one of your five things? Because then it's much more deeper, broader, and far-reaching. They're like, oh. I also tell people, and that like that's an example of how to do it, but you also need someone there to ask you these questions. But I also ask people, have fun with it. And what I mean is I was working with somebody in Los Angeles, and we were talking and doing the five core elements. And You know, one of the things she's not willing to compromise is, you know, she really wants to be focused and dedicated on the environment. And I asked why, and she was giving me all these reasons and, you know, and that she doesn't want to be a bystander in life. And and we were just talking about that. And at a moment's notice, I just said, oh, you know what? You're an environmental ninja. And she was like, (laughs) oh my gosh, I love that. Can I use that? I said, no, that's your word. So let's play around. Can you imagine going to an employer? And the employer says, so, you know, Chris or Christine, tell me about who you are. And majority of the people, because I've interviewed a lot too, they look up to the ceiling because that's where the answer is. And they say, well, I'm a hard worker, great with technology. I'm a perfectionist. I communicate well. I've worked in teams. Okay, great. So does everybody else. Right. Blah, 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 blah is what the manager (laughs) hears. They're like, okay, file that in the circular bin. That's right. (laughs) Right. In, into that, uh, yes, we'll get back to you if a suitable position comes up right. in six months. <laughs> 86 but, uh, if later, an, yeah. <laughs> if an employer asks me, well, Sam, tell me about who you are. Here's how I respond. 
I'm an individual that's guided by five core elements. Servant leadership, story sharing, activator igniter, champion enabler, and a community do-gooder. Those five things have enabled me to help individuals, teams, organizations, educational institutions, and nonprofits to their pinnacle best. But they've also helped me to become a speaker, storyteller, author, a blogger, educator, mentor and a coach, problem solver, entrepreneur, and a community activator. I think that's a much more compelling statement than looking up to the ceiling. Absolutely. Now, Chris, how would you answer that? Would you just be like walking into the room and be like, I'm a ninja, hire me. I, I, just, I, just, I just say I'm awesome, I'm the best, and the buck stops here. So uh, why bother looking anywhere else? You, you're you very, you're very confident individual, Chris. What are you talking about, baby? <laughs> I've always wondered, like, if you were to walk into an interview, how would you describe yourself, Chris? Well, first off, thank you for asking me that. I would say I would walk in and basically I would tell them that I'm the best. But so, how do you do that without coming across cocky? Because I think that's what the what Sam mentioned. What's this cocky you're speaking of? I don't know what that means. <laughs> Overly confident. Like you would have to be able to capture your skills. And so like as Sam's talking about um, supporting his students in developing these personal it, statements, it makes a, me wonder about a, yours. Yeah, there's a balance you have to walk, I think, mm-hmm. when you come into these kind of situations. You know, you can't just, you can't really be as cocky as I really am. But, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you kind of have you kind of have to um you, i guess i guess you kind of have to describe things that you could bring f- to the table right. that aren't the same thing that everybody else is saying right and yeah. and be unique but at the same time without being cocky it's a, it's a dance it's it really of, is mm-hmm. and you have to yeah. be able to distinguish yourself and be confident without being that um that one that comes across as just being way too arrogant and yeah. and also not too eager. You know, anytime that you're pursuing a new position, it's really a delicate dance because mm-hmm. if you want it so badly, you don't want that over eagerness to make it seem like desperation. And that could come in too. People can get very nervous. Like they want it so badly. They just flub the interview because, right. because they're just like, oh. They're like, I really want to be a part of this team and I really, I'll do whatever yeah. you ask me to. And then they're like, oh. It's like, I think about it like the when you're on a first date and yeah. like, if you're really into the other person and you're trying too hard and then it's like, oh, cool off. And it's like, you know, you really like the other person and then they're over eager and you're like, what's wrong with them? It's like the same thing when it comes to like job interviews and things like that and pursuing new right. roles. But on the other side, you don't want to come across as like, well, I'm the best. I'm doing you a service of even applying for this position. So if you don't pick me no loss on my part. You're just, you know, <laughs> yeah. 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 Actually, what's also funny is we're talking about the interview stage. I'm dealing with people who talk themselves out of the opportunity of even applying for jobs. Oh, and, yeah. You know, all too often I get the statement from them. Well, the employer's not going to look at my resume. Uh, so I'll get people who have I've mentored and coached who are even in, have been in industry for many years. And they're like, you know, Sam, they're not going to look at my resume because you know what? I've been at this company for 17 years and they're going to see me as stagnant or someone will do the opposite. They'll be like, oh, the employer's not going to look at my resume because I've jumped from, you know, three companies in two years and they're they're not going to look at my resume because I, I lack consistency. And right. Do you I, ever I, just look at them, Sam, and be like, you're right? Or do you try to work no, with them all if you're like, stay no, no. put for a year? <laughs> 
I ask a question. I, I call myself a difficult monk because they come to me looking for the answers to life. They think of me as this orange saffron bearded man sitting on top of a mountain. Now I have a beard. I sit on a mountain, but I, I don't have an orange saffron robe. That's, because, that's next. What's next? No, well, that could be next. But I call myself the difficult monk because they're coming to me looking for the answers to life. They want me to tell them what to do. But the difficult monk is I ask questions and the monk that they seek lies within them. And all I need to do is pull the answers out. So on that one about, well, the employer's not going to hire me because of this. I turn to them and I say, this employer, are you talking like, I'd like to know who they are. Are they male, female, tall, short, young or old? And they look at me going like, what do you mean? I said, well, you're looking at as an, at an employer as a singular person, like this one person. Yeah, you know, there are employers who will not look at your resume because you've been, you know, in the same company for 17 years and you're stagnant. That's what they're going to say. But equally, there's employers who are like, oh my gosh, I am only looking for consistency. And if this person's been in a company 17 years, amazing. And the flip side, if there's an individual who's jumped, you know, three companies in two years, yeah, there's companies or employers who are going to be like, no, I, I need someone who's more reliable and other companies who are like, I've got a project and you would be suited, perfectly suited for this project because I really only need you for one year if that's what you're looking right. for. So let's put this thing about the employer is not going to look at my resume because the employer is a spectrum. And, you know, it's interesting because they talk themselves out of opportunities. And when I catch them doing this, all of a sudden they apply for jobs and they're like, I can't believe it. I got the interview. Wow. And maybe even get the job. And, you know, they're looking at, well, the employer said three years of experience. I've got a year and a half. And I'm like, okay, is is that something that you would, you would like? And they were like, yeah, no, I think it's a really great company and really lines up. Okay. Have you built some relationships with people in the company? Uh, have you looked at their corporate culture and that you've said that it's a fit? How is it a fit? And then apply for the job. And oftentimes what happens, and it goes back to, Christine, what you said about entitlement. I tell my students, even after the semester's over, I'm here. And it's your responsibility if you want to continue this relationship because I'm, I am connected. And, I, and to Chris's note, not saying this in a cocky way, but I'm connected to people in many companies, many positions. And I'm happy to drop a word on your behalf if you've earned that credibility. And there's times where I'm surrounded by, I, I will tell you, I'm surrounded by greatness as well. And I've done references for people. And I've had, you know, former students contact me saying, what did you say? Because I got the job and I'm like, well, no, congratulations. They're like, yeah, but they didn't contact any of my other references. What did you say? And I said, well, I gave you a really good reference. And they said, okay, give me an example. And I said, okay. And this one you have to really earn from me. They asked the question at the end, would you ever hire this person? And my reply back in certain situations, very rarely, no, I will never hire this person. And they're like, oh, no, no, I would build my company around them. Oh, that's they've a nice earned, one. See, they've earned that from me because I'm looking at them saying, if I ran a company, I need you to be the foundational cornerstone of my company. And they've earned it. So, I've, again, it goes back to that spectrum. Yeah, there's, there's students who are just so focused on marks and 
I will never see them again. And then there's those who have stayed connected and they earn that comment. It goes back to this thing that I call lottery tickets. So in so many situations, whether you're in school and work, we literally have many winning lottery tickets, but it's not the kind you buy at the store and it's not going to give you millions of dollars, but it's that interaction. I mean, recently, and this happens a lot, I was in a restaurant with one of my former students and the person serving us, you know, we started chatting mm-hmm. and she found out that I teach at university and she's like, oh, you know, I, I was going to school. I'm really trying to figure out my journey and my path. And I said, well, you know, that's what I do. I mean, I'm happy to have a conversation with you. She said, oh, here's a piece of paper. And I gave her my email address and uh, said, you know, here's my LinkedIn. You can always uh, find me there just to show that I'm legit. That's a winning lottery ticket. You've just right. won. So many people, but that's the problem is very rarely am I getting people following up and they lose this lottery ticket, you know? Oh, really? Why do you think that is? Why do you think they could try to do it on their own or something? Or I think part of it is they might get busy with their life, or maybe it's too good to be true, or you know, they lost my number. I don't know, but it it's very rare for someone to follow up with me, and as a result, it's like you know, you've lost this lottery ticket because it was a winning one. I was going to help you. Uh, The story I even shared in my class on my last lecture is, you know, uh, I walked, you know, out of the C bus terminal, which is that passenger ferry, heart of downtown. And I saw this young man standing on the corner with papers and he looked lost. And I said, you look lost. And he goes, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to find the Marriott Hotel. I said, Actually, I'm going to the Coast Hotel, and it's right next door to the Marriott. It's a beautiful sunny day. Walk with me. So we started walking. And I said, oh, because I was going for an event. And he said, I asked him, are you going to an event? And he goes, no, I'm actually, I've just been in Vancouver for two weeks. I'm applying for a front desk job at the Marriott. Uh, I just thought I'd go and drop off, hand deliver my resume. And I said, no, that's good for you for doing that. But here's my card. I know the people at Coast Hotels. I know, you know, the Shangri-La and I know, you know, the Holiday Inn as well. I'm happy to do some introductions. And I gave him my card. And like I said, he won the lottery because I've given him his card and I'm going to help him. He's only been in Vancouver two weeks. Right. Well, he lost the ticket. I never heard back from him. Oh, geez. Oh, man. You know, he but, could have thought, thought you were just like, you know, just Or, or maybe he got the job. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. No, so Chris, to your point, why? Well, and, and to Christine, yeah, maybe he got the job or maybe he lost my card or maybe he thought it was too good to be true. Right. But the thing is, apart from if you lost that ticket, even if you get the job, just drop a note to say, I appreciated our conversation today. This is what I would do. I appreciated our conversation today. You know, I just wanted to let you know, you know what? I got that front desk job. And, you know, just even let me know that. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, congratulations. That's great to hear. And now you've got an establishment uh, in Vancouver and I'm very happy for you. So that conversation happens. So if you get that lottery ticket, try to cash it out and uh, build that relationship because you never know where those conversations wind up and lead. Absolutely. That's such great wisdom, Sam. And speaking of lottery tickets, you have mm-hmm. given our listeners a lottery ticket today by being here with us. Where can our listeners find out more about you and connect with you if they think that they would like to reach out? Sure. So I would say that, you know, they could tap into my personal website and it's sam-thiara.com. 
T-H-I-A-R-A.com. I've got about 180 blog posts there that I've written. And, you know, those are free and accessible to people. Uh, but a, a lot of insight and information there. But I'm also on LinkedIn. If it's, uh, for example, an educational institution that is like, okay, there's some really good stuff here. Happy to connect and talk to them about how do we make a richer environment in high school or post-secondary. So, you know, the the website, in, uh, you can also find me on LinkedIn by typing my name. But I'm also on Instagram and Twitter as well. All the cool places. That's right. <laughs> hey, uh, Sam, you also have a book that's out. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, actually, I've got two books. One is on personal storytelling, and I believe everybody has a story. So the first book emerged out of my first TEDx speech on how do you discover the extraordinary in the ordinary. And it's a bit of a manual on helping people share and, and build and tell their stories. And the second book is about my journey to India to find my ancestral roots with just a faded photograph, very little information, but also about my own identity as a British-born Canadian, parents who are from Fiji Islands and grandparents from India. I always struggled with, well, who am I? Because people would often ask, what part of India are you from? And you answer, well, I was born in England, raised in Canada. And it just goes all into that. But this, the book is Lost and Found seeking the past and finding myself because it was about a journey to go find my ancestral roots, but also to reclaim or rediscover who I am as an individual as well from an identity standpoint. Fantastic. That's amazing, Sam. And we appreciate all of these little nuggets of wisdom that you've bestowed upon our listeners today. So listeners, if you'd like to follow up with Sam and learn more about his journey and his services and supports, you can find him again at sam-thiara.com. And we will put all of his links in our show notes from this week. And Sam, any last words of wisdom for our listeners? What I'd like to just share is the quote that I live by, everyone's life is an autobiography. Make yours worth reading. We are all living stories. We all have an autobiography we're building word by word, paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter. Your story is there to be shared and never hesitate to reach out to share your story with people. The, you are a story that needs to be told. Well, thank you so much, Sam. We appreciate you being here with us today. Thank you for having me. Hey there, K2 crew. We love having you as our loyal listeners. To keep up to date with what's happening behind the scenes, check us out on social media. Yeah, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter. And don't forget to follow our Facebook page. Yeah, tag us in your favorite fun stories. And guess what? You might just end up on the show. Hey, you know, Sam dropped some good nuggets of information in that little segment there. Yeah, he definitely did. I was really intrigued with so many of his own stories about how he's overcome challenges and adversity and, you know, even how he's learned from his own father about how to overcome, you know, debilitating um, circumstances and to really not define yourself by it, but to just kind of live by your own set of rules. Absolutely. Yeah, I think I'm going to just continue to reflect on this. And, you know, I was listening over to his interview just a, a little bit earlier today thinking like, this is some really deep stuff that I think I'm going to have to process and maybe listen to another time or two to really internalize it. Absolutely, babe. You're right. We do need to listen to this again. And uh, by the way, if you want to find out more about the Chris and Christine show and all our fabulous stuff we have available for you, you can go over to 
chrisandchristineshow.com. Absolutely. And don't forget to check us out on Patreon. And we may, especially after this fancy little weekend getaway, I guess it's a weekday getaway, um, have some little bonus content that we're going to be delivering through our Patreon page to our subscribers. So you don't want to miss out on that. And otherwise, we'll be back with you next week.